Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Michael. We, uh, we appreciate uh, all the hard work that's going on uh, around our city and around our community and world, and, and we want to be a part of continuing to just reach. And, and so thank you, Michael, for sharing. Uh, let me share with you out of the book of Acts as we begin a brand new series uh, today called Empowered, uh, reading out of chapter 1 of the book of Acts, beginning at verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight, and they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you uh, into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. And then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And so we're going to just think about that a little bit this morning. And I want you to think about this passage. I know you've heard it, but I, I think it matters so much. And I hope right now... You'll kind of take a deep breath, because in these next few weeks, we're going to take a long look at this book of Acts and the story that it tells and why it matters to you and me, and we're going to kind of talk right into the season of life we are in as a culture, as a country, as a world, and how desperately we need to come together. Proverbs 20:19. you've heard it. In the King James, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law happy is he. Anything in that that grabs you? I think we tend to use the first half of the verse where there's no vision of people perish. We, we kind of throw away the second half of the verse. The Hebrew is actually much stronger than where there is no vision. It actually gets into some very specifics. The NIV translates the passage this way. Where there is no revelation... People cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. That changes the context where there's no revelation, where people are no longer seeing what God is doing, seeing the revelation of God, coming to understand better where God is in the midst of their culture. They cast off restraint. They, they get into messes. But blessed are those who heed wisdom's instruction. Are we doing that? Over in the New Living Translation, it, it translates the passage this way. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. We could kind of reverse engineer that, I suppose. Are you joyful? Are we looking up? Are we receiving divine guidance? Are we accepting divine guidance? And I, and I got to be... Honest, I think about now, a lot of us are talking about and thinking about them. We're thinking about those people who are not looking up, those people who are not receiving some insight into what God is doing, who are casting off restraint. But I'm not really so worried about them. I'm worried about us. 
I'm worried about us within the context of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm worried about us in the sense of, of, of what we've allowed to creep into us and the attitudes and, 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 and the anger that so many people seem to feel right now. And I'm worried about it because the vision of who we are is described this way. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's the description by Paul in the book of Ephesians of of who we are. Of what we who are called by the name of Jesus Christ are. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are animated by one spirit. There is this deep call for unity. Eugene Peterson in his very raw and vivid translation called The Message translates Proverbs 20.19 in this way. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what He reveals, they are most blessed. And so here we are. The fall has arrived. Now, I know it doesn't feel fall-like. Usually doesn't around here until November. But the fall has arrived. And I don't know if you keep up, but for the last decade, every fall, we have taken some time to talk about the church and why we're here not just Montrose Church, but the Church of Jesus Christ and why it exists. If you wanted to formalize that, I guess what you would say is every single fall we do a series that seeks and digs into the biblical content of the theology of the church. And we're kicking off that series today out of the book of Acts, and for the next few weeks we're going to look at and talk about that book and, and how it came to be and what it's all about. And we're going to talk about what it would look like for you and I to recognize this empowering reality. And I think that what matters so much is that right now, this pursuit to be the kingdom of God alive on earth is more important than it has ever been. These are unprecedented times. So in the middle of COVID-19, in the middle of this election cycle, in the middle of the divisiveness that's going on in our culture And honestly, just the confusion. And I really believe that most people want good things. They want right things. We don't all agree on how to get them, and sometimes we become misguided. And we become misguided, the Scripture says, because we fail to do this one thing. We fail to fix our eyes on God. We fail to look up. We fail to see the revelation of God. We fail to try to see and discern what God is doing. But God is doing something. God has a plan. We are in the middle of a process by which you and I are invited to live a certain way and be a certain way. So here's my question to you. Where will the church be in this messy, anxiety-ridden, angry, broken, divisive, misguided, fearful season? Where will the church be? Where will you be? Where are you? Where should the church be? Where do you believe you should be as we seek first the kingdom? I love how the gospel narrative unfolds. I love the way it it sort of weaves itself uh, around these primary writers, Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew, Mark, and John are gathering together together. 
what we now understand to be groups of teachings of Jesus that were circulating all already as Jesus was still teaching they were already forming his teachings into little pockets of curriculum if you want to call that uh, scholars call them periocopes we we gather these little bond the miracles of Jesus the teachings of Jesus all of these little pieces were already being circulated and so Matthew and Mark and John gathered together as eyewitnesses as people who saw this unfold, and so if you look carefully into how those, the wording is for the Gospels, it is the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to John, the Gospel according to Mark. And so those three writers are giving us this, this eyewitness sort of review. But then we get to Luke, and Luke is different. He's unique among the writers because Luke was not the eyewitness. Luke was a doctor. He, he probably came from Asia Minor. He, he uh, is a person who is scholarly. He is uh, he's quite detailed. Um, and he then tells us through some literary devices, uh, in fact, right at the beginning, he tells us that he is gathering eyewitnesses, that he is interviewing a variety of people. But we're told by scholars that something happens in the fourth chapter and it happens again in the 24th chapter. And that is we're introduced to a character and that character is Simon Peter. Uh, it happens in the fourth chapter in Capernaum. It happens at the end as one of the very final moments of, of Christ's interaction is with Peter. And we're told that this is a Greek literary device that tells us that his primary eyewitness was Simon Peter. So if you ever wondered why did Peter, such a prominent, important person in the story of Jesus' narrative uh, and his disciples and, and in, in the early church, why he didn't write his own gospel, well, Luke becomes his mouthpiece, his, the one who really writes. And so Luke gives us uh, this account. And it's a beautiful account. The, the, the writing in Luke is so powerful and so vivid, and, and you've been drawn to it. The birth account of Luke is by far the most read, talked about uh, it has details that none of the other gospel writers give us, uh, all of the vividness, in fact. Um, and there were in those days a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. That, that sort of poetic prose of how that story unfolds is all Luke and all about his eyewitnesses account. And it's a, it's a great way that he weaves together the heart and the soul and the kingdom. And all through Luke's gospel, he's offering us the content of the kingdom. He's highlighting what it means that this kingdom is a kingdom of life. It's a kingdom of justice. It's a kingdom of mercy. It's a kingdom of love. It's a kingdom of forgiveness. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of inclusion. It's a place where Jews and Greeks and men and women and all races and all ethnicities and all issues that would cause theological division and historical enemies, they're all invited to one table. And ultimately, God's will, done on earth as it is in heaven, is what unites them all together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is Father of all and over all, pulls it all together. But Luke's not done. Luke, uniquely, after outlining for us this vivid image, idea, idealism of the kingdom of God as taught by Jesus Christ, then then turns the page. He keeps his journalistic notebook in his hand and he begins to offer to us then this whole dynamic of how all of that was implemented into real life and we call that the book of Acts. And so in this second book, he, he pulls together the teachings of this young, powerful rabbi 
And he begins to talk about how they took those theories and those ideas and they began to implement them into real life. So what would it mean to a fresh bunch of idealists who, who saw the revelation of God and the teachings of Jesus and were leading their own countercultural movement in the first century? What would this group of people do that had no buildings, they had no liturgy, they had no resources, no structure, no hierarchy, no precedence? How would they respond? What would they prioritize? These who had nothing but potential, but had committed around one ideal to seek the kingdom of God above all else, to see that God's will was done on earth in their community as it was in heaven. There's no doubt that at various times this group of people will be tempted to philosophize. They will be, con- they will be tempted to pontificate. But they're not called to philosophize and they're not called to pontificate. They're called to do. They're called to be. It strikes me that this is really important. If the rhetoric of the church ever becomes more important than the work of the kingdom, we are in trouble. If the rhetoric of the church, let let me say it differently. If the rhetoric of the people inside the church ever becomes the primary focus of who we are as the kingdom of God, then we are living in a time of philosophical challenge. But we weren't called to live in a time of philosophical challenge. Jesus came and he gave us the philosophical reality of the kingdom of God. And then he asked us to go be the kingdom of God. Not talk about it, not debate about it, but go live it, go be it. Go see it come alive on earth. And that was their early call. I thought it might be helpful this morning if you and I for a moment thought about the politics of those early believers. We talked about it a little bit last week, but, but do you realize the makeup of those early believers? Even among the disciples... They were not very homogenous politically. We know that at the table with Jesus sat zealots. Now, zealots were people who were willing to take up arms to overthrow the Roman government. They were militants. They were were willing to engage in violence to see what they wanted to see happen. And right there at the same table were tax collectors. Tax collectors who were collaborative with the Roman government. Sympathizers who profited from their relationship with the Romans to the detriment of their own people. Right there at the table, there were laborers, there were professionals. In the early church, we we, we see this growing reality where, where you have highly educated people sitting at the table with illiterate people. We have high-placed Greeks who, who had great standing in the Roman Empire sitting side by side with people who hated the Roman government. We have prominent women who, who are business people in the first century who are thriving in support. And we have Jewish women who still 
had no voice in their culture or world. We had highly placed Jews who were a part of the old structure who had been woven into the fabric of wealth and power and privilege within the context of Judaism. And they sat at the table with those who had suffered at the hands of that system and been disenfranchised and been unloved and been wounded. That, that's the political makeup of this early church who, who just gathered together because of a vision of the kingdom of God because they could see what God was doing and they committed themselves to seek it. They didn't just do this out of the goodness of their hearts. They didn't just decide one day that they were going to do that. In fact, what we're told is that they waited on God to do something. They waited first before anything else. They waited for God to do something. This whole idea is very explicit in Luke's opening. You can see it and hear his ideas and the key to this new empowerment. Listen to what he writes, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proof that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They didn't just set aside their differences and all just get along. They waited for the gift of the one Lord and the one faith and the one God who was father-in-law to give them of all, to give them one baptism. They waited until the Holy Spirit gave them more in common than the petty differences that divided them. I'm going to say that again. They waited until the Holy Spirit of God gave them more in common than the petty differences that divided them. They looked up. They became empowered to see what the early implementing fathers vividly described. James writes these words in in his letter, James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. In other words, the early fathers understood this. They were empowered to believe that every good and perfect gift, every good idea, every good concept, every political thing of value, it didn't it didn't originate in a back room. It didn't originate in a strategy session. It didn't in originate inside some kind of political platform. It came down from the Father of lights. They became empowered to believe that they were no longer spending much energy on earthly kingdoms. They had embraced values 
they would participate appropriately, but their passion was kingdom life and God's will being done on earth as it was in heaven. And for such a thing, they would need a divine empowering. So over the next few weeks, we're going to explore the ways in which those early believers were empowered. And we're told right at the beginning that they were empowered as witnesses. They were empowered to say some things and do some things and share some things that would implement the teachings of Jesus Christ into the real world. I read it at the beginning. Listen to the words again. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee. They said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. And then the apostles returned to Jerusalem, the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Now, I I, want to share with you six observations from this, what it means to be a witness, to be empowered. And i got to be honest with you. um, I have a feeling that as we, in these next few weeks, speak right into the teeth of what's going on in our world and in our culture, that, you know, it's going to be easy to be upset. And uh, my prayer is that you and I are desperately desiring to see what God is doing. And that we're going to abide by this reality, that you and I are of one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one Father who is God of all. And that doesn't mean that we seek our own kind. It doesn't mean that we try to find people that only talk about what we think. It means that we commit ourselves to a God whose spirit so animates us from the inside out that what is on the outside no longer matters. So that that early church said, in Christ there is no slave or free, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no male or female, because they are all being animated by one spirit that guides. And I wonder how that might apply in our culture and in our world. If we said this is the kingdom of God alive on earth, where we are animated by one spirit, where we have waited on the baptism in such a way that the heart of who we are has united us far more than the things externally that divide us so that we don't look at the outside wrappings anymore. We are committed to something else and we strive for it not because we believe one side is better than the other, but because we believe the kingdom of God is above all of that. It's more important than all of that. It's more vital than all of that. This is the practical implementation, and we we can't spend our time and energy philosophizing. We can't spend our time and energy on rhetoric. There is work to do, and we're being called to do it. So here are my observations. Observation number one, the witness was apolitical. I know, immediately somebody's upset. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that your father has set by his own authority. 
the first question they ask is this, are you, are you going to fix what's broken? In fact, if you read the Greek here, it, it's literally, the question is literally, are you now going to empower Israel again? Are you going to make Israel independent? Are you going to kick out the Romans? Are you going to get rid of the bad guys and only embrace the good guys? Are you finally going to fix the broken mess that is the political system in which we live? Now listen to what Jesus says. It is not for you to know the time or the, or the space, but know this, your father's working on all of that. Your father's got that going on. But that's not what this is about. It's not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. I don't think their hopes and dreams and needs were held with any less passion than our own. I I think they wanted all the good stuff. They wanted independence. They wanted a government and a social structure that reflected the values that are biblical and true and long-lasting and eternal. They wanted an end to the exploitation of the poor. They wanted an end to slavery. They wanted an end to unfair taxation. They they wanted practices that put an end to cruel and inhuman and unjust treatments. They wanted to put an end to the pain and the suffering uh, that was going on in the world and in the culture in ways that you and I can hardly even imagine. And Jesus just simply said, there's other work for you to worry about. Don't miss the underlying truth. Your father's on it. He's working on it at exactly the right time. It'll all work out. Live your values. Practice your best effort at biblical life. But kingdom life cannot be contained in the political structures of brokenness. I think about that early church and I think they had an advantage we don't have. They didn't have 2,000 years of sad history in which the church had failed its constituency. If I bring up the church in almost any context, people will remind me of all the things that the church has done. They didn't have to live with that. I, I just would ask you this. If we, as the kingdom of Jesus Christ, have been unable to keep out corruption and failure within our own politic inside the church, how and why would we ever believe that some outside political structure is going to embrace what is best and godly and holy? And why do we espouse those things with such passion? At very best, they are broken, weak imitations of God's will for his kingdom and for his people. John Wesley wrote these words years ago, and I think they matter to us. October 6, 1774, he writes in his journal, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy, to speak no evil of the person they voted against, and to care, take care their spirits were not sharpened against those who voted on the other side. Let's do our part. Let's seek. But let's remember that we are called to something much, much higher. A kingdom of love where we have one faith, one baptism. Number two, the witness was deeply spiritual. The empowering witness was going to take place inside the hearts and the minds of those who had gathered from their very different walks of life. It was deeply spiritual. It was transformational at the core of their lives. 
this animating spirit would unite them and engage them with other believers so much so that the outside wrappings would no longer matter. It was a spiritual kind of empowering. Number three, the witness was deeply personal, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. It got all the way down into their personalities. It, it, it wasn't group speak. It was individuals who were coming, being encountered by, being filled with, being baptized by the very Spirit of Christ so that what united them was so much bigger than what divided them. Where people no longer see what God is doing, they stumble around. Are you seeing what God is doing? Are you seeking it? Are you waiting for it? They were no longer old creatures. They were new creatures. They weren't old creatures with new ideas. They weren't old wineskins with a few patches. They were recreated in the image of God to receive, to stretch, to be filled with the new wine, to bend, to adapt, to grow, to love to be transformed. This was a personal witness and empowerment. Number four, the witness was geographical. You'll receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. The witnessing didn't take place in a theoretical place in the sky. It didn't take place on social media. It didn't take place in an ivory tower where people were getting taught. It didn't take place in some sort of political debate. It took place in very real places. First in Jerusalem. Pontificate all you want, but get outside and help somebody. Love somebody. Change something. And if you get your whole town taken care of, go on over to Judea. Because there's plenty of need surrounding you. You don't have time to pontificate. You don't have time to formulate. That part was done by Jesus Christ, alive on earth. He's the one that taught the principles of the kingdom. Luke's moved on to the implementation. We're in the implementation phase. Well, I don't know if I think. Well, listen. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things will get to you. It's not that complicated. These are real places. And if you get done with that, if you get all done with Jerusalem and Judea, go to Samaria. Because you know what? Over there, those people don't think like you think. And they don't believe what you... In fact, they do things you think are heretical and they call it holy. Go over there. Go over there and see how your one spirit can unite you to people who are not at all like you. Who have hurt you. Who have hurt your family. Who have hurt your history. Where there's a legacy of pain. Go over there and love on them for a while. And if you get all done with all of that and you find yourself with time on your hands and you feel tempted to pontificate, then go to all the world. Because you're not going to have much time left over to do anything else except to implement the kingdom of God on earth. Number five, the witness was scalable. Just that reality. Just that reality. Just start where you are and do something. If you can't change the world, change your family. If you, if you can't change the community, change your neighborhood. If you can't change, start where you are. That principle, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, has, has a principle involved. It's scalable. Start where you live. 
Leave a legacy for your children that over all things puts the banner of love. Build a legacy where the kingdom of God is what we seek above all else. And we're not fooled or tricked into believing that there is any human institution or any human structure that is going to satisfy the deep demands of the kingdom of God. At best, they are, they are poor representations of the ideals coming down from the Father of lights. And we're going to start where we live. We're going to make sure our homes and our families are places of love where we are together waiting on the Holy Spirit of God to pull us together so that what is in us unites us more than what is outside of us. Number six, the witness was practical. It was practical. So they got to the end and they stood gazing up into heaven. And two men in robes of white came down and said, what are you doing? Why, why are you standing gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus that you've seen go is going to come again in like manner. And you got work to do. You got stuff to do that you, 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 you need right now to practically take some steps. And then I love this because Luke's the only person that tells us this little bit of information. And so then they had this heavenly, masterful vision. Jesus has been ascended into heaven. There must have been angels. There had to be harp music. There had to be a lot of stuff going on. And then two, two men in gleaming robes of white appear to them. I mean, this is, this, is, this is transfiguration stuff. And then what does Luke tell us? So after they, the two men in gleaming robes of white disappear, they had to make a day's walk back to Jerusalem. They didn't float back. They weren't spiritually transported back. They laced up their sandals and they walked back into the city in which they would begin to implement the kingdom of God. And I wonder sometimes, for you and I, we, we keep waiting for God to give us something. We keep waiting for God to make us feel better. We keep waiting for God to do something. And what he said is, I want you to wait on me so that I might pour out my spirit on you. That you might receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit so that you might be united together. And that you would go get to work. You just go ahead and go walk into the city and do the work. You come right off that spiritual mountaintop and you come right down and you walk right down into the city. Step after step, day after day, week after week, encounter after encounter, conversation after conversation. So I just, as we close, want to think about a few things. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But then when they attend to what He reveals, they are most blessed. You and I are supposed to be the visible representation of what God is doing in this world, are we? Are we? Because we, who call ourselves by the name of Christ, are one family. One faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God who is Father of all and over all and in us all. And we ought to be reminded every day. That what is in us unites us in a way so that the outer wrappings don't matter at all. At all. At all. Where will the church be in this messy, anxiety-written, angry, broken, divisive, misguided, fearful season? Where do you think they should be? Where will you be who do you think you should be? I'm going to invite the band to come back. 
And we're going to close worshiping around this song, King of Kings. I think it captures exactly where we ought to be. It is exactly who we ought to be about. I don't know what's going on in your story and in your life. I got stuff going on in my story and my life. And I need to know this. God is in control. And I got one job, and that's to trust Him and to look to Him and to look up. I'm to love Him with all my heart, and I'm to love the people around me as I love myself. There is no space for meanness and rudeness and cruelty and divisive talk and divisive behavior. And we're going to walk through this gauntlet in these next few weeks and months. And who do you think God wants us to be as the church of Jesus Christ? And who do you think He wants you to be? Let's pray. God, would you help us? We gather to sit at your feet in these weeks to study what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the church of Jesus Christ. And on this Sunday morning at the beginning of this series, we humble ourselves, we pour our hearts before you, we confess all of the stuff that's inside of us, the anger, our perspectives, how hurt we feel sometimes, how angry we feel. And we ask you to cleanse us and empower us. And in these moments that we would look up and see the revelation of God, to see what God is doing so that we would not wander around and be scattered and attack one another and attack our culture and attack our world, but we would be the kingdom of God alive on earth. Hear our response. Be the king of kings. May each of us worship you above all else in this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.